Hello and welcome to COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. I'm your moderator, Faith Rogers. Thank you for joining us. We are pleased today to welcome two expert faculty, Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, um, and also Dr. David Klimple, Assistant Professor at UC Denver. Um, Dr. Allwater, uh, Dr. Klimple, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Faith. Uh, uh, glad to be here and good day to everyone. And thanks for joining. Fantastic. Thanks, Faith. Appreciate being here. Thank you. These are our faculty's disclosures today. Um, this educational activity is supported by an independent grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. Um, all activity content and materials have been developed solely by the planning committee members and faculty presenters. Please do note that the material presented is current as of today, June 30th of 2021. For the most up-to-date and contemporary guidance, um, we do advise you to go straight to the sources, NIH and IDSA. Our learning objectives today are to appraise the efficacy, safety, and indications for treatments for patients with COVID that require hospitalization, evaluate management strategies for outpatients with mild to moderate COVID, explain mechanisms of action of monoclonal antibodies and other current and in-development treatments, and describe best practices for managing patients with COVID-19 with monoclonal antibodies and other agents. I'm going to hand this off to Dr. Allwater. Dr. Allwater, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you, Faith. And again, uh, many thanks to uh, everyone who's joined. Uh, and my role before uh, David takes on is to just uh, give uh, some uh, background, many of which uh, these aspects you may be familiar, but also uh, give you a bit of a perspective for what um, uh, patients may have available to them in the outpatient area uh, and hopefully avoid the need to be admitted to the hospital. Now, I, I think you've probably seen numbers like this for quite a while about uh, the novel coronavirus in that most people have mild to moderate illness or may even be subclinical and asymptomatic, but approximately 20% uh, or so uh, develop a severe enough problems to be hospitalized. Of course, that's from early in the pandemic when often elderly people uh, comprise most of this. And as we move now, uh, and you're probably seeing younger patients than you did a year ago uh, be admitted to the hospital. Uh, this has perhaps changed uh, and has clicked down a few more percentage points now that we have uh, especially the elderly population uh, more highly immunized. This virus to me is an infectious disease uh, uh, doctor is fascinating in, in much the same way and terrifying that HIV is in that this not only has a typical viral type phase, but also uh, appears to trigger some immunologic perturbations that um, uh, we really don't fully understand for uh, a number of reasons. Now, the virologic phase is early on, often is the amount of virus peaks and uh, resembles influenza so commonly, except for the loss of taste and smell. So it's really indistinguishable and this is where uh, some antiviral therapies and perhaps antibody-based therapies can really have an impact. Now, uh, often in that second week of illness is when we see in a subset of patients 
this kind of hyperinflammatory phase, often with uh, worsening uh, pneumonia or even uh, progression to lung injury and multi-organ system problems uh, before uh, hopeful recovery um, in patients. And of course, there are even longer lasting issues, as many of you are well aware, uh, regardless of age uh, with this virus in terms of uh, persistent problems that seem to go on for weeks or months in some individuals. Now, uh, you've no doubt seen many of these patients in the hospital but the risk factors for severe illness are very similar to what we might consider for influenza, with the exception that young people, uh, meaning you know children and adolescents, are much less at risk for developing the, uh, the severe infection that would land you in the hospital. But on the left-hand side, the Centers for Disease Control has sort of gone through a variety of uh, uh, labels uh, to, to denote risk factors. Now they've moved to an evidence basis. So the left-hand column are the ones that um, really there's abundant evidence to support. And the only ones I'd really point out um, now are that pregnancy is clearly and squarely in this category. And that's an important consideration for prevention purposes, but also obesity. Uh, and this is a BMI of greater than 30. Uh, but as you'll see, if you go to the middle category, even if you're overweight uh, with a BMI of over 25, it may place you at some increased risk along with those. You know, interestingly, the mixed evidence is all the way to the right. And, you know, people that are on, uh, I would say I've done a study uh, with Caleb Alexander and um, Catherine Alexander that immunodeficiencies and even immunosuppressive medicines don't uh, maybe a bit protective in some cases it's unclear uh, but asthma and, and most importantly hypertension it does not appear to have a strong evidence basis or qualify as a risk factor which is a common uh, question that tends to come up now besides all those medical uh, comorbidities and so on uh, the other factor is that uh, perhaps due to accessing care um, uh, uh, socioeconomic reasons, there's clear racial and ethnic predispositions for increased risks for needing the hospital or dying. And this is true uh, for blacks, also the Latinx population, and Native Americans and Alaskans, whereas, as you can see, uh, non-Hispanics uh, and Asians um, uh, might even have uh, less of a predisposition. Now, uh, we do have this case here of a patient who's 52, and this is an outpatient scenario. Um, he has hypertension, but is a smoker, and he's been sick for about 24 hours with cough and myalgia. And um, so his PCR comes up positive. He's only been sick for a day. And the question is, you know, in the outpatient arena, what treatments can you offer him? And of course, I'm still fielding questions, uh, even now, months later, about hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, um, a lot of uh, therapeutics that are uh, have been looked at for repurposing, and a lot of people want to take some of these. But unfortunately, the menu for treatment is rather small here. And although there are some promising oral antivirals that might uh, work similar uh, to what we do for influenza with the use of oseltamivir 
or baloxivir. Unfortunately, what we have based for ambulatory patients at the moment are really only antibody-based therapies. Now, um, before we get into that, on a home care basis, this is what we're still uh, recommending. And that is, um, you know, for this person, you have to isolate for 10 days if you're not severely immunosuppressed. Uh, it's curious to me whether this might actually change because we know some of the variants of concern, especially alpha, which is the one first described in uh, Great Britain, um, uh, delta, and um, also uh, the uh, 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 B1351 first described in South Africa, tend to actually um, have uh, longer periods of infectiousness up to 13 days. So I've always been curious as we've seen more of these viral variants, whether this 10 day rule will still be the recommendation from the CDC, uh, assuming that you've had resolution of fever and symptoms. And then the quarantine is still for 14 days for contacts. And I think this question, when I was working on a COVID ward, came up quite frequently where, you know, people were still not um, clear about, you know, trying to get people into a sick room at home, uh, for example, even after discharge from the hospital, as they might still be infectious. Um, and uh, those kinds of things with close contacts, people needing to stay home. And I think uh, some of the initial um, uh, uh uh, uh, how should I say, the, the initial uh, stances that people took being very careful to follow recommendations a year ago are not the case, and I often see people not adhering to quarantine recommendations if they're in, unimmunized. Of course, if you're immunized, you do not need to worry about such. As I mentioned, for this outpatient, there's really only antibody-based therapies, and, and these really work as antivirals. You know, the first one that hit was the single monoclonal bamlanivimab out last fall. This was uh, no longer distributed, and these drugs are free of charge at the moment um, in the United States, uh, because it did not have good activity against some of the viral variants of concern. But the combination uh, with etisivimab was maintained as one that would still be used. But just last week, and not in enough time to change this slide deck, um, this drug is no longer being distributed. It's paused by HHS, that's Health and Human Services. Um, so uh, the recommendation is not to use because in vitro assays, which use a pseudo-neutralization viral assay, uh, found that there was just less and less efficacy, especially against uh, some of the variants of concern that I had discussed previously. But uh, the drug did work against earlier uh, viruses and uh, did seem to reduce the risk for dying or hospitalization. And the good news is that these findings were not unique uh, to that particular product. Uh, this uh, drug, casarivimab and indivimab, is the one that's also known um, uh, as the one that the president received last fall. And uh, uh, this uh, looked at uh, patients with mild uh, outpatient COVID uh, typically, they got the dose around a day four or so. Um, and uh, in this uh, particular population, there were a substantial number of patients with risk factors, as well as some of the uh, populations at higher risk. 
And you can see that there was a substantial reduction in the need to enter the hospital or die. And indeed, it even shortened the duration of symptoms. And more recently, um, the FDA has used this lower 600 milligram and 600 milligram dose of each monoclonal that not only can be given IV, which was the earlier recommendation, but be given subcutaneously, which is, of course, a much easier method of administration. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is, of course, patients can still be admitted to the hospital. But I thought it would be important to highlight that even if they did require hospitalization, it's quite possible that this uh, monoclonal antibody also would help shorten the duration and severity of illness in hospital. So I think these are underutilized products um, because of the need to be referred for them and go to a certain location often um, and fit uh, criteria. Uh, this is um, uh, uh, something that I think is not used as frequently. A drug that you may not have heard much about uh, was given an emergency use authorization by the FDA in uh, May, and that's citrovimab. This is a single monoclonal, just like the others, that targets the spike protein. Um, and this is a, a interim results from a phase three trial that actually was um, halted early because it looked like it was clearly efficacious. As you can see here with an 85% reduction in the need to enter the hospital or death if these were given to patients, um, uh, outpatients early in illness. And uh, so uh, this uh, too also retains activity in these in vitro pseudo-neutralization pseudo assays that um, are being used to assess efficacy against these uh, variants of concern. So there's still, there are two monoclonal uh, products uh, that can be employed in at the outpatient arena. Uh, this gives you an idea of uh, what sort of has happened with uh, some of these. This is a um, snapshot of these pseudo-neutralization assays because you don't want to work with a live virus. But you can see that uh, bamlanivimab and the combination uh, was really losing ground against many of these variants. And especially if the change was over a thousand, the thought is it would correlate with no activity in human illness. Uh, but I think uh, this is getting um, more attention, especially updated with some of the Kappa and Delta variants. But importantly, at least, it looks like the uh, two uh, columns on the right have held up, although additional studies are in progress. So uh, these drugs remain at the moment for outpatients only, at least if you're uh, using it per the EUA. Uh, you have to be an adolescent or an adult um, and have one of the risk factors and uh, have 10 days or less of um, illness. Now, uh, earlier is always better with monoclonals. And as I said, some of the studies were at day four or so on average, and I encourage if you happen to have any outpatient influence uh, with patients uh, to try to get them to call their doctor, get tested, and get this as soon as possible. This is especially true because we've seen a number of terrible illnesses in patients with immunosuppression, people that do not respond to the vaccine well, uh, they may have an organ transplant or active malignancy, and, and th these drugs can truly be life-saving, I believe, in this population. 
the fact sheets are listed below for uh, details additionally. And uh, I will say in the last uh, month plus, the FDA did loosen criteria a bit to include uh, a wider range of conditions, uh, those that were sort of on that uh, uh, left-hand column for the, on the evidence basis table that I mentioned. So there, there, you know, if you have a thought that your patient may be at risk, it's worth checking that list. And again, if they're early in illness, uh, please refer them for uh, consideration of this. It, it, I think once you've done it, it it's much easier. And I, I think the message is not out as much as it ought to be. So uh, again, uh, giving it early and, um, you know, testing is available, but people I think are not seeking out testing now. They're sort of you know, staying home longer. This is sort of what we happened early in the pandemic. And I, I hope this trend doesn't continue, even though the numbers nationwide are down. Uh, the concern is that we could have another spike in the fall uh, as uh, more indoor activities amongst the population that either doesn't respond well to the vaccine or chooses not to be immunized. Um, it's not yet authorized for use in hospitalized patients, but I do want to uh, highlight uh, an aspect there momentarily. Uh, just to review, these are the current recommendations from the NIH and IDSA that no doubt will be updated uh, to strike the pamlinivimab and etisivimab uh, to use them. And so uh, the evidence has improved such that these are uh, really recommendations at this stage and uh, important. This, this um, study, I think, is very important if you're taking care of hospitalized patients. The recovery trial, which has given us a, a great deal of information uh, from the UK in this pragmatic trial, had an arm of using the combination cocktail here in almost 10,000 patients. Now, the UK is interesting in that patients tended to get to the hospital a little later, but this was the second week of illness on average uh, patients uh, were presenting uh, day seven to nine, and most were getting steroids as standard of care. But the interesting uh, part of this is that if patients, when they were enrolled in the study and got the monoclonal antibody, if they were seronegative, suggesting their immune system was either incapable or had not yet mounted an antibody response to the spike protein of the coronavirus, that there was a mortality benefit. And so this mortality benefit was about 20%. It held up statistically. But um, if you looked at all comers, it did not. And this included, of course, the seropositive population uh, there as well. Um, but in the seronegative population also seemed to prevent progression to needing uh, um, mechanical ventilation as well as the mortality benefit. So this is something that um, we'll see if this is incorporated and, and used. Um, so it may be something uh, that, again, I think speaks to the potential even for a high titer convalescent plasma, which is uh, less used. But uh, um, really, um, that uh, study, which I'll just mention, I forgot to uh, say, used a very high dose of the monoclonal antibodies, four grams, as opposed to 600 milligrams on an outpatient basis of each of the monoclonals. So it is something that you may see uh, as a consideration uh, in the next uh, month or two, depending on the FDA and the company seeking approval. So uh, here we are with the patient who um, uh, two days later uh, 
did not uh, get monoclonal antibody infusion because even though he was a smoker and had diabetes, which were risk factors, uh, but he was feeling worse, presents with a high fever, uh, some tachycardia and elevated respirations with a pulse oximetry of 84%. So at this stage, I'm going to hand it over uh, to David uh, for a discussion of hospitalized patients and considerations of treatment and starting off with antivirals. Thanks, Paul. Um, and thank you, Faith. Uh, appreciate being here. Um, you know, as, as a hospitalist, uh, we're admitting these patients, we're following through them throughout the hospital, um, and we're uh, choosing if and when to discharge them. So um, talks like this where we can really drill down as to the tools that we have to help these people um, are, are so important. So thank you so much. Um, now, Paul, uh, before I get into remdesivir specifically, um, Mr. A in this clinical scenario chose not to get monoclonal antibody therapies as an outpatient, but um, a few of our patients who end up hospitalized do have um, those therapies in their past medical history. Um, when I'm admitting patients who have uh, received uh, a monoclonal antibody as an outpatient, um, are there any considerations that, that I should have as to um, what I should be looking for or, or medicines that um, I shouldn't prescribe because of an unknown um, interaction, or is that data just too early to know? Well, I, I think monoclonals generally, um, uh, if someone had the infusion, uh, you know, sometimes they're getting the infusion too late. <laughs> you know, it's far along into their illness. Um, but uh, typically, there aren't really any drug interactions. I think the question that comes up most frequently if someone's not been immunized is when they should be immunized. Interestingly, the current recommendation is to wait 90 days. I'm not sure that makes sense. Um, you know, if you have hepatitis B, we give um, exposure, we give immunoglobulin and then immunize people all the time. We do the same with rabies. I, you know, there's no great data suggesting this 90 day wait, uh, but that's what's out there. Uh, I guess the idea is people do will generate hopefully some immunity uh, once they have uh, a coronavirus, but you know there's no scarcity of uh, vaccine anymore. So, um, but in terms of any specific drug selection, um, I don't think so. The only uh, item I would make is uh, just quickly. There is this whole controversy if you're zero negative, which you won't know for most of your patients. Uh, if you're giving a monoclonal antibody product, giving steroids, it seems to suggest to um, uh, lessen the impact of the therapy. We know that from convalescent plasma. That's about the only thing, but just from a practical basis, most people are not checking mono, uh, spike antibody levels on their patients. And of course, um, here you're giving a monoclonal and uh, you're not gonna have that data basically. Perfect, thank you so much. Um, so now Mr. A is showing up to our triage center. We've admitted Mr. A for what sounds like viral sepsis secondary to COVID-19 pneumonia. Um, so let's talk about the tools that we have at our disposal to, uh, to try to minimize the impact of COVID-19 on Mr. A. Um, the first drug that I'd like to talk about is remdesivir and specifically the ACT-1 trial. Um, so remdesivir inhibits uh, RNA-dependent RNA polymerase um, it's a, essentially a chain terminator for the virus. 
Um, the Act One trial is a or was a double-blind, randomized control uh, trial um, where they looked at remdesivir versus placebo. Um, the patients that they looked at, their inclusion criteria were people who were tachypnic uh, over 24 breaths a minute, um, people whose pulse oximeter read 94% or less on room air, uh, people who required new supplemental oxygen uh, in the setting of their COVID-19 infection, uh, or people who were requiring uh, non-invasive or invasive mechanical ventilation. I mean, interestingly, uh, they excluded individuals who uh, they thought would be discharged from the hospital within 72 hours or less. Um, their primary endpoint was what's called time to recovery on their ordinal scale, which was uh, leaving the hospital either on or off supplemental oxygen, um, or if the patient was hospitalized, but for a, a non-medical reason. So, for example, if they needed to be placed in a nursing facility and their hospitalization was uh, was prolonged for a, a social or an administrative reason. Um, what they found uh, were positive results uh, independent of glucocorticoid use. Um, they found that patients uh, not only left the hospital sooner, um, but they also found a mortality benefit um, in the use of remdesivir. Um, this graph shows a Kaplan-Meier curve um, of cumulative recovery um, showing that the patients who had received remdesivir, um, their recovery was maintained over the full 28 days uh, of study. Um, the patients who required supplemental oxygen, but who were not sick enough to require heated high flow, BiPAP, uh, or mechanical ventilation, showed the most benefit from remdesivir. Um, but the patients who were on mechanical ventilation had little to no benefit from remdesivir, um, which in retrospect makes sense given what we know about the life cycle of the virus and the waning effectiveness of an antiviral medication after the virus has already replicated. Um, interestingly, the patients in between, uh, the population who required high flow oxygen or non-invasive ventilation, um, were shown to have a, uh, and Paul, please correct me if I'm wrong, a transient benefit, but when plotted out over the full 28 days, uh, the number of patients who recovered was about the same. Um, and uh, importantly, remdesivir was found to be uh, essentially a benign uh, intervention. Um, the medicine was safe. Uh, the adverse effects were about the same across from remdesivir versus placebo. Um, like we talked about a few slides ago, uh, different ethnic groups have different rates of hospitalization and mortality um, from COVID-19. Um, and those patients had prior to um, this retrospective trial uh, been severely underrepresented in clinical trials. Um, it's thought that um, likely social determinants of health are a, a main reason why um, non-white um, patients have uh, higher morbidity and higher mortality. Um, and so it was important to study these underrepresented groups. Uh, additionally, while the ACT-1 trial had some individuals receive glucocorticoids, 
Um, glucocorticoids weren't the standard of care when Act One was underway. Um, and lastly, Act One gave people 10 days of remdesivir. And there was a concern that we might face a global remdesivir shortage. So it was important also to determine if a shorter course could also be effective. Um, this study uh, was a retrospective case control study of people who had been uh, admitted with COVID-19. And about 80% of them self-reported as a non-white ethnicity. Uh, they found that the time to clinical improvement was shortened in patients who were given remdesivir compared to those who weren't. Um, additionally, the mortality at 28 days was decreased in patients who were given remdesivir compared to those who weren't. Um, and importantly, these patients were overwhelmingly given a five-day course of remdesivir rather than a 10-day course. Um, if you look at the bottom, the, the last bullet, um, these patients didn't show significant difference uh, in the cohort who received remdesivir alone compared to those who received remdesivir plus steroids. However, this is somewhat the fault of the um, retrospective case control format of this study. Um, the people who did receive steroids were significantly sicker at baseline. Uh, about twice as many of them had uh, COPD or other chronic lung disease, and more of them were severely ill in general. Um, this plots out three Kaplan-Meier curves. Uh, the one to the absolute left shows uh, the difference in the patient populations with severe disease, um, which they defined as uh, the use of high-flow nasal cannula, uh, non-invasive ventilation, mechanical ventilation, uh, ECMO, or pressors. Um, and while it does look like there is a difference between those two curves, um, the benefit was not statistically significant. There's not enough uh, daylight between those two. Um, and as you can see uh, from the middle and the rightmost graphs, there are benefit in their moderately ill patients as well as the patients who were, um, who retrospectively would have been in the ACT-1 trial. So from this, from these two trials, uh, the NIH recommended that hospitalized patients who were on supplemental oxygen um, but not invasive ventilation, uh, ventilation or ECMO receive remdesivir um, remember that people who are not sick enough to require supplemental oxygen um, didn't seem to have much benefit from remdesivir. Um, and likewise, the IDSA recommended that patients with severe COVID-19, um, so those who were not uh, hypoxic based on Medicare standards, so below 88%, but people who were below 94% uh, or at or uh, below 94%, um, uh, or requiring supplemental oxygen, but not requiring mechanical ventilation or ECMO, receive remdesivir. It's always challenging uh, as a generalist, especially when many, many trials are coming out very, very quickly. Um, it's always challenging when there's seemingly discordant data. Um, the solidarity trial is a trial that looked at multiple different repurposed antiviral drugs um, to see if any of them could impact mortality. Um, the remdesivir arm is ongoing, um, but currently they're reporting negative data. 
And, and Paul, if you wouldn't mind giving me an assist here, I, I'm trying to reconcile the results of this larger study with that of, of Act One. And, and my main challenge is when I'm looking at their methods, I, I, I'm not quite sure what they're actually doing. Would you mind helping me out with how to, how to reconcile the solidarity sure. trial yeah. with my clinical care? Yeah, so, yeah, David, uh, it's great because I think remdesivir, uh, you know, some people have looked at this extremely large trial and said, look, there's no mortality benefit. Why should we use it? And indeed, many countries in Europe have not adopted it. Brazil hasn't on the basis of this study. Now, the Act 1 trial is a gold standard RCT, um, you know, placebo controlled, very well done with rigor. This is a pragmatic trial, no placebo arm, and there were three other comparator arms, like a lapinavir, ritonavir arm, there was a hydroxychloroquine arm, and so on. So there are four groups, and investigators are allowed were allowed to switch patients among groups if they felt there was a need to switch. Um, also, uh, it was not the randomization, as it were, wasn't uh, across the board. This was done in many sites. But most of the remdesivir armor, much a great majority of it was performed in Iran. So you could argue that perhaps this study doesn't quite reflect what we do in the United States. Now, the ACT-1 trial statistically didn't show mortality benefit. There was a mortality trend. It was more the reduction of the length of stay. Um, so, you know, as an infectious disease doctor, I think, you know, uh, people that do have ongoing viral replication may benefit. Uh, with remdesivir, I think others would say there's really no benefit based on this trial. But I, I think there's a lot of limitations here. We don't, there's probably some groups that could benefit. But this solidarity trial uh, really was meant to be happen quickly. I mean, they get a lot of kudos for setting this up early in the pandemic, but it had limited data acquisition. So we're, it's not nearly giving us the kind of information where the drug may have some benefit. So Two different studies, two different results. Uh, people choose to interpret differently. Thank you. I think for the, well, not even for the time being, I think we'll continue using remdesivir. I think, you know, something like 405 hospitals were enrolled in this, and it sounds like they were using different methods of enrollment. So we'll, we'll stick with IDSA and, and NIH. Um, moving on from remdesivir, um, you know, there was there was this idea early on in the pandemic, especially before um, other agents had rolled out that convalescent plasma could be beneficial in patients with COVID-19. Um, there are other illnesses in which convalescent plasma can be helpful. Um, and while my understanding is the specific mechanism of action of convalescent plasma is not entirely known, we do know that uh, it can act as a neutralizing agent. So um, anti-spike protein IgG um, can bind and neutralize the virus, um, can stop it from uh, a host invasion. And um, there is some idea that uh, it can also help moderate the hyperinflammatory response uh, in a way similar to, to IgG. Um, Oh, sorry, uh, IVIG, my apologies. Um, so uh, people were using convalescent plasma in the hopes that it would help, which led us to this trial. Um, this was a retrospective study 
looking at individuals hospitalized with COVID-19 who either had severe illness or who were at high risk of developing severe illness, who had received convalescent plasma with a known titer. Um, so convalescent plasma, um, the anti-SARS-V2 uh, IgG, it, it can't be concentrated. So the bag of plasma is the bag that you have. Um, so the question was, could, uh, could um, uh, doses of convalescent plasma that had a higher titer of anti-SARS-V2 IgG be more beneficial. Um, for this study, the primary outcome was death within 30 days after the patient was transfused. Um, and what they found was that patients who were intubated um, had no benefit from convalescent plasma. Um, this study, patients were very sick. Um, almost two thirds of them were in the ICU um, and about a third of them were on mechanical ventilation. So the patients who were on mechanical ventilation didn't seem to have benefit from, uh, from convalescent plasma. However, um, the patients who were not intubated did have benefit. Uh, and that benefit seemed to be dependent on the titer of anti-SARS-V2 IgG in the plasma they received. Um, interestingly, people also had a lower mortality if they were given plasma within three days of diagnosis compared to those who had received plasma later in their course. Um, this speaks to convalescent plasma's presumed ability to neutralize the virus uh, or block host entry, um, given that such an effect would be more beneficial early in the course while the virus is, uh, is actively and robustly replicating. Um, one thing that the authors of this paper did say was that the highest predictor of mortality um, wasn't the titer of convalescent plasma, but it was simply the age of the patient um, who received uh, either intervention or placebo. Which brings us to this study, um, prevention of severe COVID-19 in the elderly by early high titer plasma. So this was a double-blinded randomized control trial. Uh, they included patients um, who had symptoms for 72 hours or less. Um, so uh, we've already talked about just now that uh, people who have been diagnosed earlier on could have more benefit from convalescent plasma. Um, so this study just looked at people who had symptoms for 72 hours or less. And um, given that you know, elderly patients are the most at risk, uh, they only included patients who were either 75 years of age or older or patients who were 65 to 74 years old with at least one significant comorbidity. And the patients were stratified based on the titer of anti-SARS-V2 uh, uh, IgG in the plasma they received. Um, their primary endpoint was progression to severe respiratory disease, uh, which they defined as tachypnea above 30 or oxygen saturation below 93. Um, in the 15 days after receiving the transfusion, though they excluded the first 12 hours post-transfusion to um, try to exclude patients who developed taco or trolley from the transfusion itself. And what they found um, was that the patients who had received the highest concentration, the highest titer um, of antibodies had the most mortality benefit. Now, I'm going to pause there um, 
Paul, with these two trials, I think we were hopeful that convalescent plasma would be able to be to be widely used. Um, but the recovery trial, which has almost all of the available data for uh, for convalescent plasma, seems to suggest that there's not much of a benefit. So again, yeah. is there? How can we? Kind of explain these discordant results together. Well, I, I, I think simply put, David, uh, recovery, as you can see here, contributed most to these trials. A lot of these trials were cut short because in China they ran out of infections to treat and so on. But if you look at recovery, the average day of illness to administration is day nine. They're already well into that second week of illness. So again, I think <clears throat> We've uh, sort of looked at it and said, if you're early in illness, there's potential for benefit of people presenting to be hospitalized. But the other group, which none of these really address, are the people that don't mount antibody responses. And I think we know who those are, you know. So we don't have the perfect trial for plasma yet. It's really the only antibody-based therapy we have for uh, hospitalized patients at this time. Thank you so much. Um... And it looks like when we pull out the recovery trial data, it almost seems like the data suggests that plasma would be effective. Um, but again, yeah, like I, you said, mm -hmm. oh, after you. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I was just saying, yeah. And so this was with uh, mechanical ventilation use and, and preventing that. So, you know, again, it looks like you're, you're getting people earlier in the illness, not all comers. Yeah, right. Gotcha. Thank you. Um, so from there, the, the true recommendation for the use of convalescent plasma is, uh, is extremely mixed. Um, so we don't have any strong recommendations on the use of convalescent plasma. Um, however, in people who are, who are unable to mount um, who have been, or who have been shown to be unable to mount an antibody response, um, uh, it's... It, it seems to be reasonable to use convalescent plasma, even in the absence of high-quality, robust data. Moving on from remdesivir and convalescent plasma, um, one of the, or probably the most widely used intervention is glucocorticoids. Um, so the recovery trial uh, arm for dexamethasone um, looked at uh, people who were not on oxygen, on oxygen or ventilated, um, who had COVID-19. And what they found was that in the patients with whom uh, dexamethasone was used, um, ventilated patients had the highest relative mortality benefit uh, with a number needed to treat of, I believe, eight. Um, so this was, was huge. Um, that was followed by people who were on oxygen but who were not ventilated with a number needed to treat of 34. And people who were not on oxygen had no benefit and even trended towards harm uh, in receiving dexamethasone. Um, interestingly, people who had symptoms for longer than seven days um, had the most benefit in terms of reduced mortality, um, which in retrospect makes sense uh, as after viral replication, 
most of the damage that's done with COVID-19 is because of that hyperinflammatory state. So if you target patients who've had this disease for longer with an anti-inflammatory medicine, one would expect uh, a more efficacious drug. Um, interestingly, uh, dexamethasone didn't just show a strict mortality benefit. Um, it was also shown that patients were less likely to need non-invasive ventilation. Um, they were less likely to need to be intubated. Um, if they were intubated, they were less likely to, or they were um, had fewer days on the ventilator. They were weaned uh, safely off the ventilator sooner. Um, length of stay was shorter. They were um, easier to discharge. Um, and even from a non-pulmonary perspective, um, fewer patients uh, needed to be on hemodialysis um, who were on the dexamethasone arm. Um, so from this, dexamethasone was um, kind of widely used and is still widely used. Um, so now we go back to Mr. A. Um, so Mr. A, uh, we've admitted Mr. A into the hospital. We've given Mr. A remdesivir. We've started him on dexamethasone, but um, either it was too late in the course of his illness, or he had too many comorbidities, or he was just one of those patients who downtrended. Um, and 72 hours after we've admitted Mr. A into the hospital, um, we're called for hypoxic respiratory failure. Um, and he's transferred to the ICU and started on BiPAP. Um, we check a CRP, um, and Mr. A's CRP is found to be incredibly elevated. So now the question is, what other interventions can we do um, to assist Mr. A in his recovery? We've known that elevated levels of inflammatory markers um, including IL-6, um, have been associated with mortality in COVID patients. Um, so it was thought that giving uh, IL-6 blockade uh, with an IL-6 receptor blocker um, could improve clinical outcomes. So there were several early trials um, with tocilizumab um, to see if tocilizumab was um, effective in any way, shape, or form in helping patients who had COVID-19. Um, the challenge with these early trials, and I won't go through all of them in depth, but the challenge with these early trials is that they all had different methods, they all enrolled different patient populations, and they all enrolled people with uh, in different time courses of their disease. Um, most of these trials had kind of mediocre results at best, um, uh, the stop COVID trial did show that maybe there was some benefit, but, um, the patients who received tos uh, tocilizumab were also somewhat younger and healthier. So from these early trials, it was difficult to really hope for this drug. Um, but we did find a few, um, kind of core features from these early trials. Um, we found that, um, it didn't harm people. Um, it seems to be a benign intervention. Um, people, uh, some folks would develop mild neutropenia, but that neutropenia wouldn't uh, correlate with more infections. Um, and we found that it didn't work on its own. However, in the patients who were receiving dexamethasone or other steroids, there seemed to be some benefit. 
The remap cap pragmatic trial um, looked at ICU patients who had been the, in the ICU for a day or less. Almost 90% of them were also on steroids. Um, and what they found was that hospital mortality was less, 90-day uh, mortality was less. Um, and interestingly, the effect was most pronounced on the patients who had the highest CRP. But it was a fragile study. Um, the status of only three people would um, have to change to make the results um, statistically insignificant. Which brings us to the tocilizumab arm of the recovery trial. Um, like the other arms of the recovery trial, it was a large multi-centered study. Uh, it included hypoxic patients admitted to the hospital with COVID-19 with a CRP above 75. Um, and almost all of them received steroids. Um, and what they found was that mortality was decreased, rate of mechanical ventilation was decreased, and length of stay was decreased. Um, so from that, um, we can assume that while tocilizumab doesn't work well on its own, it works very well in people with a hyperinflammatory state who are also on steroids. Um, there are other interventions that we can use. Um, and Paul, would you mind telling us about some of these other uh, agents that we can provide for our patients? Yeah, so, I, you know, David, I, I think you're right. The tocilizumab, which, you know, a lot of people embraced early, sort of was a dud. But when combined with corticosteroids, it looked like this very targeted anti-IL-6 receptor blocker seemed to yield benefit, mortality, and, and decreased severity of illness. These JAK kinase inhibitors, baricitinib's one, they're approved for rheumatoid arthritis. You know, there have been two trials, uh, one just using the drug alone, which only had a one-day benefit, the ACT2 trial, the, you know, the, the, the brother to the sister, I should say, to ACT1. And, but a re more recent COVE barrier trial, because steroids became the standard of care, combined it there. And you can see there was uh, a risk reduction here, but it didn't, you know, with uh, the mortality benefit. But interestingly, their primary endpoint, which was combined lack of progression death, it wasn't met. It's a confusing trial, but these drugs, I think, um, uh, uh, have a potential role because like steroids, these uh, inhibit a lot of signal transduction and um, uh, are just to have a broader action like steroids compared to this kind of very targeted inhibition of uh, IL-6 by tocilizumab. There are no head-to-head -head trials. So for the moment, um, you know, the NIH and so on say you can use either a baricitinib and remdesivir or you can use uh, tocilizumab uh, and dexamethasone. So you can sort of combine them, you know, as uh, three potential agents uh, with your options of tocilizumab or baricitinib. Uh, personally, I, you know, I don't think baricitinib has been widely adopted uh, yet, just because the strength of evidence is lower, um, and so tocilizumab seems to be the option. So when we look at uh, our patient, he uh, did receive remdesivir, dexamethasone, and tocilizumab. He was getting worse. This is where there's probably that sweet spot for an additional agent, and he improved and was discharged home. You know, post-discharge, there are a lot of issues that we could probably tackle, but I just wanted to summarize a couple of key points here that monoclonal antibodies are available, and again, for patients with risk factors, I think they're so important to consider hopefully early in illness as all antivirals are. Remdesivir is the only FDA approved drug. 
remember uh, the people that benefited most were those that needed oxygen in the ACT-1 trial. Those who weren't on oxygen were a small number. There may be benefit, but you'd have to treat so many patients to show benefit. It's not a it's not one that's been used widely for that patient population. And it did shorten the duration of illness by five days. And I think some other retrospective data supports this idea that it will shorten duration of illness, which I think is still important reason for consideration of it. Uh, any antibody-based therapy or antiviral, if you can use it as early as possible, you'll have a better benefit. And remember dexamethasone lowers mortality. And now there's some evidence to suggest tocilizumab does as well. So Faith, we're gonna move on now to uh, a post-test consideration. Thank you again to our learners for that. As a reminder to submit a question, please click the Q&A button at the bottom of your console. We'll try to get to as many as time does allow. Um, I'm going to toss this first one over to Dr. Allwater. Um, th this learner asks, what is expected this summer and fall as far as the spread of the Delta variant and its effect in areas with low rates of vaccination. Right. Well, um, I, I've learned it's, uh, I should, one should never forecast what uh, this virus will do. But I, I think the concern with the Delta variant is that there is increased transmissibility. We've known that. It now accounts for 20% of our um, viral isolates that are sequenced in the United States. So much like the alpha variant, it's established a foothold and is rapidly replacing others. Um, the, um, a number of modelers predict a fall upswing. Again, it's gonna be in the population of people that are unimmunized um, or um, don't respond well. So um, there's, that's why there's still great um, emphasis to try to get as many people immunized as possible uh, by a variety of methods. So I think there will be some seasonality to this virus and uh, you know, much like uh, RSV and influenza, we'll, we'll see more of it come the fall. Okay. Um, Dr. Klimple, how often is remdesivir used for less than or more than five days? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so in general, remdesivir is used for five days or until a patient is discharged from the hospital. Um, patients can be on remdesivir for you know, fewer than five days if they have dramatic clinical improvement if they're discharged from the hospital. I am not aware of any... Um, of any clinical scenario where remdesivir will be prolonged past five days um, based on our findings that um, it has benefit with a shorter course. Fantastic. Oh, okay. And our next question, do we know how long vaccine-induced immunity lasts? Will boosters be required? <laughs> Well, I'll jump in there. This um, it's a question everyone asks. Uh, interestingly, the mRNA vaccines look like they're increasingly more potent, um, uh, mainly because they may also have better T cell responses and um, uh, so on. So the antibody kinetics so far suggest we'll have protection a year and more. Of course, time will tell on this, along with protection against some of the variants, some of which may still yet emerge. So although people are planning for a booster um, at the moment, I would say that's quite undecided. And my hopes are at least 
for people that have received uh, Pfizer or Moderna, they may not be in need. Okay. Um, that is going to conclude in the interest of everybody's time, our Q&A for today. Got a lot of really good questions. Do stay tuned for some of our upcoming webinars, and we will um, hopefully be able to answer those there. Um, for the audience, if you'd like to claim credit, please click on the claim credit button. It will appear when the webcast ends and be on the lookout for our 30-day survey. You'll receive that in your email. And as always, your responses will help us develop further education. Thank you so much for joining us and have a great day.